Hello and welcome to the Trail Magic Podcast, where we seek to equip college students with resources, biblical teaching, and helpful conversations for the journey ahead. It's becoming more and more clear that we live in a world that is not altogether friendly to the gospel message. There will be times when our faith in Christ puts us in a tight spot. When that happens, how should we respond? How did the apostles respond? Join us in Acts chapter 4 as we learn from the apostles on how to respond when facing persecution for our faith. Let's hit the trail. In the 8th century, there was a man named Boniface who was a missionary to northern central Europe in the time of the Roman Empire. Boniface was facing a lot of pagan superstition in the city where he was ministering. So one day he had a brilliant idea. He gathered a crowd of people around a sacred oak tree that the people believed belonged to the thunder god. And he took an axe and he began chopping down the tree. The local people could not believe this act of sheer defiance. One legend says that while he was chopping, a powerful gust of wind came and blew the tree right over on top of the ground, right in front of the crowd. Everyone was stunned. They'd never seen anything like this before. Boniface was directly opposing the authority of their gods. And... He was clearly winning. Well, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John come face to face with the Jewish leaders after healing the lame man at the temple gate. And where Boniface intentionally poured gas on the fire, I don't think Peter and John meant to stir up the Jewish leaders, but nevertheless, that's exactly what happened. And so they wind up in jail for the night, and then they end up in court the next morning. And while this looked like a really bad stroke of luck for these two guys, The reality is their persecution actually opened a door for them to preach the name of Christ in a place that they never would have thought possible. And so the big idea I want to uh, leave you with today is that as Christians, we don't have to go looking for trouble. Jesus says in the Gospels, it's going to find us if we are faithfully following him. But oftentimes in those difficult spots, Christ gives us opportunities to speak his name in ways that we never would have thought possible otherwise. And so let's jump into the text. We'll begin by reading Acts chapter 4, 1 through 13. Verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's your big problem right there for the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they required, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, this man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so we're going to look at just two headings today in these first few verses uh, about what happens to the apostles and then look at some takeaways for us at the end. The first thing we see is the apostles are are confronted and captured. They're confronted and captured. We see this in verses 1 through 4. So the healing of the lame man certainly raised some eyebrows, but it was their subsequent teaching on the resurrection of Christ uh, is what really chopped down the tree, if you will, going back to our story of Boniface. And so the priests and then the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees all showed up to put a stop to this circus sideshow uh, as they saw it <clears throat> in their eyes. Now, to understand uh, what's going on here, you need a little context as to the background, who each group is. And so the priests, first of all, would have been the ones chosen on a rotation to conduct the evening sacrifice in the temple. And you need to understand, this was a big deal. I mean, they really looked forward to their week on their rotation to minister in the temple. So you can imagine the aggravation they felt when Peter and John throw a major monkey wrench in their plans to serve in the temple uh, in their big you know, time in the spotlight. And then you had the captain of the temple guard. You can think of this guy as kind of like the police chief for the temple. He would have been second in rank to the high priest, and he would have been charged with keeping order in the temple precincts. And then next, this text includes the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are, are a different group from the Pharisees, and you don't hear as much about the Sadducees, but they were major key players in Jesus's day. They were really the dominant religious and political force in Israel, even though they were a fairly small group. Uh, as far as beliefs, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Sorry. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> but they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the existence of angels or the spirit world at all. And so what they did was they used a bunch of hollow and empty religious talk about God to control the temple and to stay in power. And so they were ticked when two roughneck fishermen showed up and basically start cooking in their kitchen and everybody's coming to eat what they're fixing. So, you know, you ask the question, why were they so annoyed? What made them so mad? Well, three reasons, really. The first reason is, in their eyes, the apostles, Peter and John, had no sanctions. They had no backing. They had no credentials. They had no reputation as teachers. And here they are, and they're teaching with an authority that is beginning to sway the crowds. People are paying attention, and their authority is obvious, and they can't figure out where this authority comes from. Theirs was rooted in the group that they belonged to. It was rooted in the temple location. But they can't figure out where these apostles are getting their authority. Second, they were uneducated fishermen from Galilee. So if you want to think about it like this, they were from the wrong side of the tracks, and they had no formal rabbinical schooling or training. They were just uneducated, kind of backwoods good old boys, if you will. And then third, to use a sports analogy to help you think about this, when you think about the temple as a location, the temple would have been like the home court of the Sadducees. I mean, this was a home game for them. And here the apostles would have been like the visiting team, and they were showing up on the Sadducees' home court and running up the score on the Sadducees at home. 
This would have been a completely galling direct attack on their authority right in front of the people. These would have been the people they were trying to impress and to hold sway over. And then in verse 3, it says that they confronted them and they captured them and they threw them in jail for a night, thinking that will shut them up. That will make them think twice about what they're doing, about this Jesus that they're talking about. And it was late evening, and so their law uh, would not allow them to hold a nighttime trial. So we go to verse 4, and verse 4 tells us the result of this preaching. It says, Many of those who heard the message believed, and, it, and the number of men, just the men alone, came to about 5,000 by this early point in the book of Acts. Uh, this thing is spreading everywhere. I mean, this would have been like trying to stop your basement from flooding in a monsoon. And it teaches us something about the Word of God, and I think this extends out to our evangelism, that the Word of God is powerful. Hebrews tells us it's alive, it is active. And when these people heard the good news of the gospel set in front of them in clear, plain ways that pointed to Christ as the Messiah, they, they realized, man, we've been religiously thirsting to death. And we didn't even know it. And so they drink in this gospel message like clear, fresh water, and they turn to Christ in faith. So that was enough for the religious leaders to get ticked off. And so the second thing, th- second thing we see is the apostles are cross-examined in verses 5 through 12. So already 5,000 men, most likely, plus a good number of their families, had trusted in Christ. And the religious establishment was losing ground fast, and they knew it. So they called Peter and John in the next morning to stand trial in front of the Jewish court, which would have been called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was was led by the high priest, who I think the text says uh, is Annas. Annas is the high priest. And uh, but but really, Annas wasn't the one really calling the shots. Caiaphas, who was his father in law, uh, had been removed from office by the Romans, but he he was still retaining uh, this position of power and influence. He wasn't technically in the position, but he was still kind of like the head over this vast empire of religious and political corruption in the city of Jerusalem. And so if you want a, a good picture of uh, Caiaphas uh, to think about, uh, or Annas rather, to think about, uh, just just think about uh, Vito Corleone from The Godfather, you know, who's just kind of sitting back and calling the shots and everybody's doing his bidding. And so they call them in and they begin the cross-examination essentially with one question. They've narrowed it down to one thing they want to know. And the question is this, by what power or in what name have you done this? That is healing the lame man. So what they want to know is how did you pull it off? How did you pull off healing this lame man at this gate? He was a well-known guy. Everybody kind of knew who he was. Um, How did you do it? And it's not an innocent question. It really wasn't. Um, I'm not even sure it was a thinly veiled question because these religious leaders, these Jews, knew who Jesus was, and they were well aware of his followers by this point in the storyline. And so their question was most likely laced with an accusation that Peter and John were in fact rebelling against their religious and their political authority, uh, their position, and right there uh, in the temple. And so they're trying to get Peter and John to paint themselves back into a corner by attributing this miracle to someone other than God because they don't think Jesus is God in the flesh. And then by Old Testament law, if they do this, if they attribute this miracle to someone other than God, then they're going to have good grounds, the Jewish leaders would, to sentence Peter and John to death. The interesting thing is, what they did not mean to do 
was open the door for Peter to turn the witness stand into a pulpit. And Peter loved to do that. He did the same thing at Pentecost, if you remember. And Peter turns the witness stand into a pulpit and he starts preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll summarize verses 8 through 12 with you. Peter, basically filled with the Holy Spirit, begins his defense and he boldly turns the tables and says this. This this is my translation. If we're being tried for helping a sick man get well, then something is bad wrong. We're not the ones committing treason here. You are. And you're going to try us for helping someone when you're the very ones who killed the Messiah and whose name he was healed? Well, I got news for you, boys. The king you tried to kill is still alive. And he is God. And all the religious and financial and political power in the world that you may hold is not going to save you from his judgment. Because your good name on this earth is not going to mean a thing in eternity. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved not yours not mine it's only in the name of jesus these things are possible now wait a minute wait a minute it isn't this the guy peter who disowned jesus at the moment of his greatest need and claimed that he did not even know the man three times even with a curse i mean what happened to peter that changed him so dramatically well it was said of dl moody The only change I see in him now, speaking of Moody, is a growth in conscious power and a speaking with added weight and conviction. He is thoroughly and wholly conscious that it is all of God. Praying alone with him, I found him humble as a child before God. Out in the work, I found him bold as a lion before men. No hesitation, no shrinking back, no timidity. See, the difference Christ makes in us when we're yielded to his spirit, it can't be fully measured. Peter simply refused to back down from preaching the name of Jesus when he was given an opportunity. He spoke with courage and he spoke with conviction because he was personally convinced of the truth that is in the name of Jesus Christ. If you remember what Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Instead, speaking to Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. That is why I suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed, Paul says, because I know whom. That's a personal connection. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Gaining the conviction that God has called you to himself will give you the confidence to speak in his name. If you know you didn't call yourself to God, then then you're not going to be able to lose it. But if you know God has called you to himself, he will never lose you. Jesus says that you can never be plucked out of his hand, and that gives us confidence. See, I think most of our fears in personal evangelism come because we fear people too much. And many times we fear people too much because we don't fear God enough. If you go on our podcast, you'll hear some uh, very brief but fantastic devotionals from John Lachelle on fearing God uh, and, and what that looks like and what the Bible has to say about that. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can never touch your soul. Rather, fear the one, one, just one, who can cast the body and the soul into hell. The apostles feared only one name. And that name 
is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so as I wrap up this message, I just want to leave you with a couple of closing thoughts to help us think through how we apply this text to our lives today. And the first one is this. Any time that you strive to serve or give or lead, teach, love, anything you do in the service and in the name of Christ, you will at some point face opposition. I promise that. If Jesus faced it, you will too. And unless we're just going to go along with the world, well, then of course the devil's not going to bother us, right? Sometimes, if I'm honest, I've been shocked when I have faced legitimate persecution and legitimate opposition. Um, like, I, I've been shocked. I've been surprised. Like, wait a minute. You know, th- this isn't supposed to be happening to me. Look at what I'm trying to do for you, Lord. But see, that kind of mindset fails to take into account passages like this one in Acts chapter 4, which shows that we will clearly face persecution if we are faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're going to face persecution. Number two, God doesn't need our skills. He doesn't need our degrees or our expertise, whatever we may think we have, in order to use us in his work. He wants a faithful soul yielded to the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. My youth pastor used to say it like this. He wants fat disciples, F-A-T, faithful, available, teachable. And you could probably throw in humble, but that would throw off the acronym. (laughs) But someone who trembles at his word and surrenders their lives over to his plan and his purpose. You know, we're talking about living for God's glory here. So if you get to thinking, you know, oh, man. God sure is lucky to have me on his team. Look at my spiritual gifts. Look at all the theology I know. Look at the mission trips I've been on. Look at how many times I've shared the gospel. Then you are never going to do anything great for God. And if you somehow stumble upon doing something great for God, if it's not to glorify God, it will not last. And the Bible actually affirms that. He has told us what he desires of his followers. It's not skills. It's not degrees. It's not expertise. Micah 6, 8 tells us that he desires us to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before and with our God. So he doesn't need all of our uh, you know, expertise and things to use us. Third, we need to trust in the word to do the work. Trust in the word to do the work. Too many times I have seen an evangelism, uh, evangelism opportunity coming. You know, I could just kind of see it or feel it coming. And internally, I start to panic, um, you know, going back in my mind and thinking, OK, I've got to get this presentation on how to share the gospel right, um, just like they taught me at the conference. Um, what is that letter that my thumb stands for? And what's the one that goes with my pinky? You know, I'm trying to remember all these presentations and like the three circles. I love that, you know, but like sometimes I'm stumbling over my presentation. But listen, God is sovereign. And that includes even your evangelism opportunities that you have. I say this all the time, but I love it. He can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. So he can take your fumbly and wobbly gospel presentation. He can use it to beautifully save someone and bring them into his kingdom of light. I love 1 Corinthians where Paul reminds us that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so when the word goes forth, it will accomplish everything that God intends for it to do. And that's from Isaiah chapter 55. That's a promise. And so we need to trust in the word to do the work. And last thing I'll I'll leave you with is this. Remember this. Your good name down here on earth 
won't mean a thing in eternity. Your name down here won't mean a thing in eternity. There's only one name that matters, and that's the name of Jesus. So if deep down in your heart you struggle with people thinking less of you for following Jesus, listen, let me encourage you, be honest with the Lord about that right now. And ask Him to help you with your struggles with people approval, with your struggles with doubt or unbelief or fear. Ask Him to cleanse you of your tendency towards self-preservation and toward building a good name for yourself. Ask Him for a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit today and remind yourself of the truth in Psalm 115 that says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. So let me close this in prayer, and uh, and we'll we'll head out. Father, we thank you for this text in Acts chapter four, and we thank you for the the things that it, it has to say to us. We thank you for um, the historical, factual example of Peter and John, and we thank you for the ways we can apply this text into our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we face difficulty, as we face trouble, uh, Lord, we remember that you may have opportunities in the midst of those obstacles. Uh, for us to speak about your name. So give us your boldness. Give us the confidence that we belong to you and give us the conviction that the truth is in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Trail Magic is a production of the College Ministry of Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone, North Carolina. For more information, go to abfboone.org. Thanks for tuning in.